You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Millie Hill, a freelance journalist and author of The Positive Birth Book, Give Birth Like a Feminist, and a new book for preteens called My Period. She founded the Positive Birth Movement in 2012 and ran it up until this year when she was canceled for defending women-centered language when talking about pregnancy and birth. I, I wonder if you can just start by telling me a little bit about your, your history in the birthing community and how you got involved there. Yeah, well, it's kind of a sort of convoluted story, really, how I got involved in the world of childbirth. But basically, um, I've had three children, which I think is, is that always involves women in the world of childbirth to some degree or other, really, actually having babies themselves. But um, when before I had my kids, I uh, worked as a therapist. Um, and so I was always sort of interested in the emotional and psychological angle of it all and when I was first pregnant with my first baby I was kind of like oh my god you know just really like I suddenly felt very different in the way people were speaking to me and I felt like I wasn't being you know respected in the sense of you know as an autonomous individual and an adult in the way that I was kind of used to in the rest of my life so that was when I first started thinking about birth as a feminist issue and then um yeah, that was when I first started thinking about birth as a feminist issue. And then, um, you know, I also really noticed whenever I spoke to other women about their birth experiences, um, you know, when you become a mom, you kind of like go to a lot of groups where other women, you know, you have other women in your life having babies at the same time. You know, so many people were um, talking to me about how awful their experiences were and how traumatized they were and how, you know, how little autonomy they had, etc. And so I was just quite shocked by the whole thing. And so that kind of got me really involved in thinking about, you know, birth in terms of like feeling there was an injustice happening to women and wondering what I could do about it. And then I started writing, which was kind of totally separate enterprise. Um, I'd always, you know, been, you know, like writing. Um, but because I had, you know, time, I had small children, I started writing a blog and I started, you know, getting trying to do more. And I started to get um, journalism work. Um, and every time I wrote about birth, I got a big response. And so I kind of like, you know, started to sort of realize that I wasn't the only person thinking all these thoughts about birth. So that kind of led me further into it. Then I set up something called a positive birth movement, which I kind of like didn't really realize was going to be as big as it was. But I just thought, is there a way of using the Internet and social media, which is kind of blossoming at that time? You know, Facebook and everything is like 20 around about 2012. Um, and you know, in, in the way that it's so great at connecting people. So is there a way, you know, we could have like real life meetup groups where women can really talk frankly about birth and their choices and their stories, but also is there a way we can like use social media to connect all of these groups up around the world and kind of build a kind of power network of women. So that was the kind of vision I had for that. So all of these things kind of snowballed along. And so that's kind of how I ended up getting involved in birth. The, the positive birth movement took off massively, very quickly. Um, you know, we ended up with hundreds of groups around the world. Um, and I kind of coordinated all that for about nine years. And at the same time, I've done lots of writing about birth. I've written two books about birth since then. And, you know, kind of been one of the kind of go-to people in UK journalism to write about issues around birth. So that's kind of like, <laughs> it's a bit of a woven tapestry. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like you, so you founded the positive birth movement. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And you're the author of the positive birth book, of course. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What is the positive birth movement? I mean, do you said that a lot of women have negative and even traumatic birth experiences how does the positive birth movement kind of try to address that or ameliorate, ameliorate that situation well I, I think the idea of it was the whole idea of positive birth was to try and cut down the middle of this polarity which was already there between go to the hospital and do everything the doctor says or stay at home and hug a tree and light all the candles kind of thing you know this idea that that 
positive birth could be something that any woman could have in any place, in any situation, and that it wasn't about the type of birth that she had or or anything to do with judging the choices that she made. It was more about um, feeling in control, being the key decision maker in the room, um, you know, having choice, true choice, um, all of those things. So the positive birth movement, I think, aimed to do that um, in two ways. One, like I said, by connecting women up and and, um, using social media to break down some of the kind of misinformation or kind of the imbalanced power dynamic that goes on in birth. So, for example, you know, if a woman in Kentucky is told, you have to do this um, by, by whoever, you know, this is the policy here. Well, if she then talks to a woman in London who says, well, that's not that's not what our guidelines are. You know, that's it automatically kind of powers up both of those women because they're, you know, they're finding out that this is kind of like a, a bit of a house of cards. You know, some of some of the information that women get when they're pregnant is actually not really necessarily um, evidence based. It's just policy based. So all of that sort of um, the, the power of social media to, to, to link women together to um, help inform each other was is really, really important in, in terms of positive birth. But also, I think another thing that the positive birth movement did was um, changing the narrative. So and again, social media is so great for that. So um, sharing uh, stories, sharing, I mean, it's so common now that it's it's hard to believe that it it hasn't always existed. But, you know, you go on Instagram now and look at certain hashtags, you'll be able to see really incredible birth videos, really incredible birth pictures. But 10 years ago, you could, there was no, that it was very hard to see that, but that, that narrative wasn't in the mainstream the way it is now. So I think the positive birth movement played a role in kind of like, um, you know, encouraging that to happen. You know, um, you know, we had like hashtags, like there was one that was really viral called birth just happened. And, you know, women were really shocked by that, um, those images, because they showed women who just given birth and those women who just given birth looked full of life and really energized and vibrant and ecstatic. And they were very different images to what people had in their brain as what a woman who's just given birth looked like, you know, like she'd just been run over by a truck kind of thing. Mm. So that was the kind of way it worked really just sort of trying to change the narrative and link women together to kind of, you know, help, you know, ch- challenge the power dynamic. Why do you think that so many women have negative or traumatic birth experiences? Well, I mean, I think we're just not getting birth right. Um, you know, women, women's bodies are not trusted um, to give birth or to do many other things for that matter. <laughs> you know, I don't need to tell you this, but, you know, the idea of women being sort of defective or faulty in some way or a kind of a problem that needs to be fixed really comes um, into stark um you know, uh, focus in the bathroom. And I think the, the, the system that we've set up, um, in order to try and make birth safe has been very effective in many ways. Um, you know, but in, in many other ways, it's been very detrimental to women's experience of birth. Um, we're very good now at sort of like, um, in the West anyway, you know, getting everybody alive at the end of it. But in that process, um, some of the, you know, the more spiritual aspects of birth um, have been forgotten, as have, you know, um, the, the woman's needs. So a lot of the way we do birth now is focused around the care provider's needs. So, for example, bright lights, you know, that's great for the care providers. They can see what's going on. You know, that's their best working environment. But for a woman who's a mammal, that isn't the optimal in, environment to give birth. So we, I think we're setting women up to fail. We're putting women in an environment where they're less likely to have a birth that is straightforward and that proceeds as it should, in an environment in which their bodies are less likely to, in inverted commas, work. Um, and then we're blaming women at the end of that experience because, and we're kind of saying, well, you proved us right there because, look, you weren't able to give birth very effectively. Lucky we were here to rescue you from your defective body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, we're just not... Um, we're not honoring women enough. Um, you know, women need a very different kind of space to give birth in than the kind of space that they're usually offered. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't always like that. As far as I'm aware, you probably know a lot more about the history of all this than I do. But, you know, 
birth at one time and you know still in in other some other cultures um really was something that was done by women you know like it hadn't yet been taken over by the medical establishment and hadn't yet been treated as this thing that women couldn't be trusted with and that someone else um you know a man in many cases and certainly in the beginning um that a man had to kind of be in charge of and take responsibility for and and women just had to sort of succumb to whatever the expert decided um yeah how, how did that happen can you talk a little bit about that history uh yeah well i mean you know you're absolutely right and um you know if you go back back in time you know the the thing is that's important to say is that it's not like all or nothing so it's not like oh we want to go back to the dark ages because <laughs> there would have been many situations in in those times where um you know people would have died or the baby, a woman would have died or the baby would have died because there are there are problems um obstetric problems that occur that that modern medicine can solve that couldn't have been solved then so it's not about glorifying that that time but it is about looking at it and thinking um you know what were we doing right then that we're not doing right now you know it um we haven't necessarily made a linear progress in every sense so yeah i mean originally it would have been very much sort of um you know a woman's space um and perhaps you know, uh, a more um, nurturing space. Um, you know, the birth writer, um, Sheila Kitzinger, talks really well about the different kinds of touch and how, you know, we've we've replaced this kind of, if you imagine a, a room in which there's a lot of nurturing touch, a lot of loving touch, a lot of, you know, people coming around you that you feel safe with who are, uh, you know, massaging you and stroking you and soothing you. And then the kind of touch that you might see in your kind of like um, modern labor ward, you know, the kind of like examinations, um, putting in of drips, you know, um, moving you onto the bed, that sort of thing. So almost like a sort of a, a punitive touch or an examining touch or a different kind of touch. So, you know, we've taken away a lot of the comfort um, and the nurture and the celebration and the warmth from birth as we've gone through history. And it's a very long history. Obviously, I won't go through it now but <laughs> um i think gradually you know as as um what basically happened was as doctors began to see you know that there was a, um a job for them to be, to do money to be made effectively um in the birth space um they came in and took over and they they had a different approach they had tools um and they were quite sort of solution focused, perhaps, <laughs> mm. um, in a way, you know, that was less nurturing and more focused on the end results. Um, and so, yeah, gradually that happened. And then what then happens as you go further along through the sort of line of history is pain relief comes in because birth, you know, does become more and more um terrifying in some ways and painful especially when you're getting things like forceps involved um you know and then yeah it's it's you 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 can sort of see how we've slowly drifted towards where we are today if you look at the whole long history um in terms of um you know taking away quite a lot of the comfort and bringing in quite a lot of measuring and um you know now we have quite obviously a lot of um you know, machinery and beeping and bright lights. And it's a very, very different kind of space. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, you, I mean, your, your other book or one of your other books, I should say, I know you've written a bunch of them is, is give birth like a feminist. And, and earlier you, you said that birth is a feminist issue. Can you, talk a bit more about that what does it mean to give birth like a feminist yeah well I mean I think I think um you know I think the it's really interesting thinking about you know I mean I wrote that book a couple of years ago and you know obviously you're constantly thinking about what is feminism and you know what does feminism mean and I've, I've thought a lot more about that in the last few years as well but trust me <laughs> but um you know, I think when I wrote the book, the way I felt about what feminism is, is 
um, you know, that it's, I think in the book I even say that it's like seeing um, where women are getting a raw deal and taking action. And I, I, I mean, that is pretty simple definition, but to me that made sense. And it kind of still does make sense. You know, there are, you can get very complicated about, you know, analyzing what feminism is. But in some ways, to me, it's just that. It's just that kind of sisterhood and solidarity of seeing, God, you know, for me, it was like seeing this isn't right. You know, this is what is happening to women here is damaging them. And it's it doesn't have to be this way. And we should do something about it. So to me, that's what the book was about. It's about, you know, why is it is a feminist issue? Because things are happening to women that should not be happening. They're not being respected. They're not being listened to. They're not being heard. They're not being treated with love and care. They're not having a positive experience, you know, in many cases that they could be having a positive experience that, that, um, you know, a lot of women who do have really positive empowering birth experiences say that it's very transformative for them. You know, it makes them feel good in all kinds of other areas of their lives. They feel, you know, better about themselves. They feel better about their, you know, their, they feel really good about their bodies. You know, it helps their self-esteem. It helps their confidence. It helps their sex lives. It helps their parenting, their motherhood. Um, so all of these things that could be happening, um, these positive, um, things that could be happening to women through, becoming mothers um are in many cases not happening so to me that's like that's a feminist issue you know this is part of women's lives that's it, it that could be transformative and empowering that is instead is damaging um so i guess how do you give birth like a feminist um i think by 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 waking up to this and to think to realizing that you're not necessarily being given the full picture um, and that there, you know, you can challenge, you know, it, it's, it's so simple, but just down at the, the, at the basic level of like, um, you know, women not feeling that they have a voice in the situation at all. You know, sometimes when I go and give like talks, um, you know, maternity things, you know, pregnant women and stuff, you say to them, you give the whole talk and they come up to the end and they say, I didn't know that I was allowed to do that. I didn't know that I was allowed to ask those questions. I didn't know that I was allowed to say no if I wanted to, you know, that's a, I mean, that's a really big one. You know, the vaginal exams that women have in, in labor, you know, which in the UK it's every four hours um, that, you know, they examine to see how dilated you are. Well, you can say no to that. You don't have to have fingers inside you during labor if you don't want to, but it's an unbelievable the number of women who don't realize that they can say no to that. Well, I mean, what could be more of a feminist issue than that? <laughs> In my view, you know, um, women actually having another person, you know, examine them in that way and not know that they have a right to say no. And if you don't know that you have a right to say no to something as intimate as that, that's pretty serious, you know, um, and yet it's happening every day. You know, I talk to a lot of women who are, are to them, it's an absolute revelation that they have that much power and control in the situation that they can say no I don't want you to do that um so yeah I think that's what giving birth like a feminist is it's not about saying no to everything because you, you might not want to but it is about knowing that you can mm. you do have you are the ultimate decision maker in what happens to your body um mm -hmm. and obviously you know again going back through the history side of it you know it's all tied up with uh you know the idea of the 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 baby being the most important thing, which, you know, it, in that you can see how that, that sprang up, you know, that the woman is just the container um, that isn't, you know, is less important than the baby in terms of, you know, evolution and the future of the human race. I guess you can see how that might have, things might have been perceived that way, but that still lingers, um, you know, and women are told, um, you know, quite that there's a phrase that we have here in the UK I don't know if people say it in America but they say you know all that matters is a healthy baby um and pregnant women are told that they're told you know well a healthy baby is all that matters well what message does that give to a woman if she's being told the, the only thing that matters in this experience is that the baby is okay and the baby is healthy doesn't mm -hmm. matter about you at all is the subtext it's not meant that way not not directly and intentionally, but that is the subtext of it. Or leave your dignity at the door. Leave your dignity at the door is another thing that women are told. Okay. So when you have a baby, don't don't <laughs> leave your dignity at the door. Don't expect any kind of like, you know, to to feel um, 
respected you know, or respected human or treated with dignity. <laughs> what a weird thing to say. I hadn't heard that that second phrase. I had heard um, a healthy baby is all that matters. And I know that you wrote an article that went viral, I think, about yeah. six years ago or something like that, addressing that phrase. And and that, that approach makes me really angry, too, because, as you say, it really it treats women as though they're vessels. And... Of course, women want a healthy baby, but of course, or you should, of course, want a, a healthy mother. And the the woman's yeah. experience in life and body and dignity matters. And and we can see how that attitude, of course, plays into the abortion debate when people start talking about, you know, you're you're killing a baby, and it's like, well, you know, what about the woman's life and and her choices and and that that fetus doesn't necessarily matter more than she does you know it's not a a binary conversation it's not like oh this matters and this doesn't matter but I mean that approach really does in my opinion devalue and dehumanize the woman and just treat her as though she's a she's a thing that exists to to you know keep the species going and and we exactly. are more than that, you know, that that's part of it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> We're still animals, yeah. of course, but <laughs> I yeah. Mean, yeah. Like I get, what was the response to that article when you wrote it? Was there backlash or? No, no. I mean, it was just hugely viral. It's, and it's, it still goes around, you know, now if I reshare it or whatever, it still flies off again because I think it just really spoke to people. Um, it was particularly focusing on, the postnatal thing, because, you know, that's one of the times when women get told that, you know, or, you know, if they're, they try to talk about the, you know, being upset or traumatized or that they've got some feelings they want to talk through about their birth, you know, that may be difficult. And they're kind of sometimes like shush, shush, you know, like, Oh, come on, you know, look at your healthy baby, look in your arms. The healthy baby's what's mat- what really matters here. And, you know, it's, I think that really um, struck a nerve with with women, you know, being told you matter too, you know. And isn't that awful that you know, <laughs> just a few years ago, you know, saying to and, it's, and it still would go viral now if I shared it tonight, you know, women going, wow, someone's actually saying that I matter in this experience, you know, um, and that I have, you know, that's another really big problem that we have is that women who do have traumatic births don't have any space to, to tell that story, really nor do the women who've had positive births. I mean, it's, again, with social media, it's a little bit easier now. There is that place where people are telling their stories. But when you have a baby, you know, people, there isn't much um, praise heaped on you or space given to you to kind of like, you know, you just, can you imagine, you know, if you say you have like a car accident or something or say you um, climb a mountain or you win a really amazing book prize or whatever it might be, that some really major life event, negative or positive, you know, you quite often will find people say, oh, come on, sit down and tell me everything, you know. But when you have a baby, quite often, <laughs> women just don't have any space to to talk through what's happened to them. Um, and, you know, to be made to feel really cherished, you know, to, to be heard, you know, in that story. So and and they're just like I say, and said in that article, you know, quite often they're just shushed, you know, come on, let's just move on from this. You know, you've got your healthy baby now and that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. And. So, of course, you know, birth is a female experience, you know, it's inherently a woman-centered experience, only women can give birth, and yet we're dealing with this phenomenon, this trend of attempting to neutralize birth, um, to make it a gender-neutral experience, and... And oddly, this, I mean, it's so odd to me that midwives of all people have taken up this effort, this campaign to turn birth into a a gender neutral thing or to speak about women in a gender neutral way. So to talk about, you know, pregnant people or people with uteruses or people with vaginas or menstruators and things like that. When did you first start seeing that happen? Um, I guess probably about three years ago, um, roughly, I'd say, I noticed the women and birthing people phrase coming along. And to begin with, I thought, oh, okay, 
yeah, I'm going to have to change my language. You know, looking at the Positive Birth Movement website and everything I'd ever written, it was all very much steeped in the word woman. And suddenly it starts to leap out at you, doesn't it? You look again and you think, oh, I've used the word woman about 50 times in that article. <laughs> wow. You know, I didn't notice that um, until suddenly, you know, this new language came along and you think, oh, I'm going to have to maybe think about changing that. So, yeah. Um, but then I sort of started to investigate and to have a think about it because just a few things didn't really add up for me. You know, this idea of, well, one of the things I wondered was where did that phrase birthing people come from? Because everyone was using it. It seemed to be everywhere. And I just thought, I mean, I didn't feel any like hostility or negativity about it, but I just thought who decided on that? You know, that's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm a writer. I'm my main interest really is words. <laughs> so I was thinking, birthing people, you know, like what, it, who decided that was going to be the thing we all said. And then the other phrase that I noticed a lot being used suddenly um, and just come right from the left field kind of thing was assigned at birth, assigned male at birth, assigned female at birth. And um, again, I thought this is just doesn't quite make sense because what do they mean assigned? It's not really assigned, you know, um, and it doesn't actually happen at birth either. I mean, I'm not a midwife, but I can tell you when people find out the sex of their baby, it's at the scan or you know, in, in any other kind of testing. So what? <laughs> so a couple of things like that jarred me. And then what then jarred me was the reaction that I got if I asked what at the time were very innocent questions about those um, words. That was the thing that made me really curious because if someone tells me that <laughs> I'm not allowed to know about stuff or ask about stuff, that kind of <laughs> <laughs> it kind of makes me want to do it more. So that kind of set me off, um, you know, down the rabbit hole that many of us have gone down maybe, um, and just doing a lot of reading and then, you know, thinking about other areas, you know, which are totally unrelated to birth, for example, uh, children, you know, as I said to you before I got into sort of writing, you know, I worked as a therapist, I was a therapist with children. Um, and when I heard about the affirmation model, I was like, what? That is so completely incongruous with everything that I ever learned as a therapist and every way that I ever practiced as a therapist. Being a therapist is not about affirming anything. Um, it's about holding a space. It's about listening. It's about, you know, being non-judgmental and allowing the client to explore. But it's definitely not about making a judgment on behalf of anybody else or, or having any kind of agenda so yeah I just started to think about all these things and it took me on quite a journey <laughs> um, and and so did you at that time did you start to speak out about it uh no not for, not for a long time no because like I said, I mean, a couple of times I maybe asked a question, um, let's say in a Facebook group or something, and I was very quickly given the message, this isn't okay, you're not allowed to, you know, this is just what we're doing here, we're not having a discussion about it. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's really interesting looking back on it actually, just how it is very difficult when you're in a world, you know, like the birth world in a community of people who all know each other it is very difficult to um to speak out but I just started to get more and more convinced that something wasn't right um in this kind of ideology and it and just so many things didn't stack up and the whole sort of atmosphere of not being able to talk about it like I say just made me more and more determined to learn more um so yeah, I kept quiet for a long time, um, and then, yeah, then I did decide. To, then I started to make the odd comment here or there, and I think quite quickly, you know, people cottoned on to the fact that I wasn't necessarily gonna do what I was supposed to be doing, which was nodding along. You know, you are, mm. <laughs> you know, you've got to nod along with it all, haven't you? You've got to. It's like a religion. You have to say the mantras you have to repeat everything to certain phrases yeah and I think people can can tell quite quickly when there's like a heretic in their midst because yeah 
even if you ask very polite questions, they can sense you're asking questions, obviously, you know, that you're not going along yeah. with it and that that maybe you don't buy it and, and that's not allowed. And so, of course, you know, the reason that I, I heard about you recently was because there's, there was a campaign aimed at you, accusing you of transphobia, um, yeah. launched by the New Zealand College of Midwives. What happened well, there? Yeah, no, that, that campaign wasn't launched by the New Zealand College of Midwives. Oh, okay. um, it was, it, just to be really clear, um, but the, it was launched by um, a group in New Zealand who objected to me speaking at this conference that was being hosted by the New Zealand College of Midwives. Oh, okay. So... I was asked to speak at that conference pre-pandemic. And actually, <laughs> if it wasn't for the pandemic, it would have all happened, you know, and I would have gone to New Zealand, which I was incredibly excited about because I've never been there. And it was a really huge opportunity to visit a country like that, which I probably wouldn't normally have got. Um, but then the pandemic happened and the conference got postponed. And then they said, um, would I still do the conference but would I do it by zoom <laughs> so I was like okay mm -hmm. crying into my wine I'm not gonna mm -hmm. get to go to New Zealand no. but, um, anyway like, and it's I really not I was... the same doing these things over zoom is it? no not really no at all, at all. <laughs> anyway that's that's my little that's by the by but um yeah so it was it was to me speaking at that conference via zoom that the objection was was made but there's a story before that, which I don't know how much you know about, but it was, you know, there was a big, big um, uh, witch burning cancellation, whatever you want to call it, that had occurred before that um, event, which was why the people in New Zealand knew that I was not the right person in their opinion to speak at that conference. So Yeah, I don't know much about that. So can you tell me what happened there? Yeah, so it was around about this time last year. In fact, it was towards the end of November last year, 20, where are we, 2020. Um, and uh, it was um, it was the International Day to End Violence Against Women. <laughs> and um, I had been thinking about violence against women that day. I was It was another lockdown, I think, as far as I remember. The kids were at home, and I was kind of like pottering around doing all the stuff, and uh, on and off social media and thinking about I was thinking about violence against women and reading a lot of posts about it and I was thinking about obstetric violence which is you know uh, violence against women in the birth context um, and I was thinking about how nobody ever talks about obstetric violence you know in the context of violence against women not very often anyway anyway somebody tagged me in a post on Instagram um, and the post on Instagram um, had all these slides on it um, and I just get it up so I don't misquote any, anything or myself or anybody else. But yeah, it was, it was, they, they, they tagged me in this post. Um, it said obstetric violence is about power and patriarchy. So I was like, yeah, okay. Then it said, um, birthing people are seen as in inverted commas, the fragile sex who need to be kept under patriarchal authority by doctors. So I was like, Hmm, that's interesting birthing people are seen as the fragile sex and I just thought that really annoys me basically because you know you're mixing two things up here um fine you know use your language around birthing people if you want to not talk about women but don't then describe them as the fragile sex that's just dumb you know? <laughs> do you know what I mean I mean the fragile sex is is a sex and it's women there there it's it's not people who get described as the fragile sex it's women there's a history there you know <laughs> so I thought I don't know I mean you know lockdown makes us all maybe a little bit too much on our phones and maybe I should have thought before I I shouldn't have responded maybe but I think if, you know I would have outed myself somehow and it was only one little comment on a on an Instagram post so I commented and I said uh, good to see this post. I would challenge the term birthing person in this context, though, especially on international data and violence against women. It is women who are seen as the fragile sex, etc. And obstetric violence is violence against women. Let's not forget who the oppressed are here and why. And so the, the poster replied and said, obstetric violence is violence against anyone on the receiving end of obstetric violence, women, trans men, non-binary people, anyone. And so I said, 
Personally, I think it's part of violence against women. But if you disagree, then at least don't leave them out and say women and birthing people. So <laughs> I have read over that interaction a few times now, and I still can't really see, um, in some ways I can't see how I was in any sense extreme in that, in what I said. But like you said, if you show some heresy, some signs of heresy, then they, they can see it. And they did see it and all hell broke loose on social media. It was absolutely vicious. Um, I was called um, <sighs> violent, um, obviously a turf, um, harmful, um, sickening, um, that I was abusing my power, that my book should be thrown in the bin. I was toxic, dangerous. I'm just scrolling through them all. Transphobic, deliberately causing harm, poison, deliberately hateful, a vile creature, um, etc. It's actually really, I've become kind of immune to reading those things out loud now, but when it happened, it was absolutely horrific. Um, the pylon that happened was, I mean, that's just a tiny few you know screenshots but it was every five seconds i'd be tagged in another instagram post saying what an evil bigoted vile dangerous violent person i was <laughs> so it was pretty horrific and um a, another thing that then happened was an organization called birthrights who are uh, a uk charity who promotes uh human rights and childbirth joined in in my opinion joined in and um they uh they they did a social media post that didn't name me but talked about inclusivity and how they wouldn't work with anybody who didn't share their inclusive values and at the same time they <clears throat> fired off an email to me at kind of 11 o'clock at night telling me that you know they they wouldn't basically be able to work alongside me anymore you know, I, I wasn't employed by them, but it, we just knew each other. And, you know, I supported mainly our relationship was me supporting them. So they were basically saying, <laughs> we don't want you to support us anymore um, or be associated with us anymore because you don't share our values. So it was all pretty that, that made it pretty hard work because they're very highly regarded. So that was like a rubber stamp in amidst all this bin fire of abuse that I was getting, that was like the grown-ups came in and rubber stamped it. So that was pretty appalling, really. And when was that that this all happened? That was just a, a, a year ago, last yeah. November. Uh -huh. And what's happened since then, you know? What's the impact been on your career, for example? Well... For after that, I mean, I was absolutely devastated at the time. Um, and for a long time, I couldn't. I mean, I still feel upset now talking about it, to be honest, a year later. But, you know, last sort of December, January, March, whatever, I just couldn't I couldn't talk about it without crying. It just I was absolutely devastated. Um, I felt so attacked um, and, I, and it was so hard to understand where it was coming from because I just couldn't, I just couldn't work out. Like, you know, it was so vile and so aggressive towards me. Um, so yeah, it was really, really awful. Um, and I just lay low really. I mean, obviously we're in this pandemic situation as well with lockdown. I've got three kids. So it's kind of like very occupied with all of that as well. But yeah, I just kind of just, you know, didn't really know what to do I was afraid to to speak about it really because I just didn't want to ignite anything like it ever again I mean I just never wanted to experience anything like that again so I kept very quiet um I decided to stop running the positive birth movement I don't want to blame um that situation completely for that but for me that was the final straw I just felt like you know, I'd done it for nine years. I've mainly done it um, for nothing. You know, it wasn't like a massive money-making operation. It was a grassroots, um, you know, organization to try and improve birth. And 
um, I just felt like I can't pour any more into this if, you know, and if everybody hates me like this, you know, I just felt like really hated. Um, and I just wanted to sort of move on from it. Um, so I was already like pretty worn down by the pandemic on thin air. So I just thought that's the last straw. I'm done with that. So, but I was, you know, really worried about publishers finding out that this had happened, you know, uh, anything. I mean, I, you know, I was worried about my livelihood really. Um, so I kept very quiet. And then I finished this book, which I've just, just came out like in the summer. Um, I finished it. It went off to, to press. This is a book for preteen girls about periods. And so that was kind of like in the bag and other things were going on in the world of, you know, the gender debate, if you like. Um, there was the essay that was written by um, Chimamanda, um, which really spoke to me because she spoke about a different situation that happened to her. But she wrote it so beautifully and she articulated so beautifully, you know, the essay that was called It Is Obscene. And then. Uh, a woman in the UK who I believe, in fact, I know you had in your podcast because I listened to it, Jester Wiles, um, she was, you know, cancelled or bullied or whatever you want to call it by um, the Royal Academy. And she was in the news a lot and she got an apology. And I was, you know, I was sitting there listening to it all and I was thinking, I want, a- <laughs> no, you're kidding, I want an apology. <laughs> Where are our apologies? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just thought I can't. I I tried for like this was by by now it was like June of this year, so it's like six months, seven months that I'd I'd sat on the situation and this, and not spoken about it to hardly anyone, and I just thought I can't keep quiet about this any longer. This is the same thing that is happening to these other women, happened to me. And it's it's relevant. What happened to me is relevant to this discussion. It's relevant to, you know, the, the bigger picture. And it's, you know, it's what they've effectively done, those people, is they've used me as an example to everybody in the world of maternity in the UK and people who are involved in breastfeeding support and other, you know, areas of women's health. And they've set, they've I, they've used me to to silence all those other people because mm-hmm. loads of them were getting in touch with me and saying, you know, I, I feel really worried about all this, but I can't talk about it because look what happened to you. So I thought I'm just going to talk about it. Um, I'm going to kind of like go all in, you know, like you do in poker. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to I'm going to play the hand. I'm just going to speak and I'm going to risk everything and I don't care. I don't care what happens anymore because I don't want to not tell the story because it's important and it makes other people, you know, other people speaking out made me feel braver. And I thought if I speak out, then it's going to be part of that, you know, that snowball of women, you know, telling their stories and saying, no, I'm not going to shut up about this, you know? Mm -hmm. So I did. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I mean, and we, we do have to speak up. I mean, because the impact is, as you say, that it scares other people. What happened to you is a lesson to other women not to yeah. speak out. Um, you know, what's happened to me is a lesson to other women not to speak out. What happens to happen to Kathleen Stock and um, yeah. and the myriad of other women who've been subject to, you know, a form of persecution for challenging um, these directives <laughs> this new trend yeah. and and when we all stay silent i think more more women stay silent and the more of us that speak out the more empowered other women feel to speak out so i do think yeah. that it's important and brave and and even if we do sacrifice something um but i mean so you did you did manage to publish your recent book without problems is that correct yeah, well, that was all kind of going ahead. Um, you know, I, I, I did wait until I knew that that was, you know, it would have been very difficult for that to not go ahead before, I, you know, I waited until that point, if you like, before I spoke, because I didn't want, I have got to make a living. <laughs> I didn't want to, to 
have the publishers pull the plug on it, um, which they could have done. And there were conversations even before I told the story about um, whether that book would be trans inclusive or not. And I think you know what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean <sighs> inclusive, in my view, as is a is a word that has got a, you know some uh, some stuff going on under the surface. <laughs> So yeah, um, I obviously I've always been very um, passionate about inclusivity, but that there are you know it's it's come to mean something different, I think in recent times, um, and I wanted a, a period book that was um, empowering to young girls, and I wanted to use that language. I wanted to talk about girls' bodies, female bodies, and how great it was to be a woman. And the publishers knew that from the outset, really. So they shouldn't they weren't surprised, and they shouldn't have been surprised that that was my that's my ethos. You know, I, I guess everything that I've ever written has been about championing women and changing the narrative around their bodies, the negative narrative and saying, you know, you've been told that you are this sloppy, useless, dysfunctional, um, wonky creature that needs fixing, but actually you're not, you know, (laughs) that's kind of like what all my books are about. So anyway, I wanted to, that book to, to go ahead. So I waited and, and so, yeah, I mean, What's it, how, what impact has it had in terms of the future? It's really difficult to know. When you're self-employed, you know, you don't know um, what conversations are being had about you that you're not aware of um, in terms of, we could ask Millie Hill to speak at this conference. No, we better not because, you know, she got deplatformed from that one in New Zealand, didn't she? And by the way, that was effective, that petition in New Zealand that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, there was a counter petition, which was nothing to do with me, which got a lot more signatures, but, and the New Zealand College of Midwives originally said that they would support me, um, because they thought it was insane what was happening. Mm -hmm. But then there was, there were meetings were had and they, they changed, they, they completely changed direction and they didn't support me and they canceled the entire conference and they, you know, they used other reasons Um, But basically, I think it was just to get out of the situation, to pull the plug on it all. So, you know, who is going to invite me to speak at their conference now? Um, Are there publishers who think, oh, no, she is a terrible bigoted transphobe. We don't want, you know, we don't want to work with her. I don't know that. I'm never going to know that. I'm never going to know um, what opportunities might have come my way if I'd towed the line, repeated the mantras and just kept my head down. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's not my personality type, really. I'm not very good at doing that sort of thing. <laughs> no, me neither. I'm not, I don't seem yeah. capable of it. So <laughs> no. Our lives will be impacted by that, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> that unfortunate personality trait. I don't really think it's unfortunate, but it's definitely challenging in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. It causes yeah, no, a feel- lot of... Uh, it causes some distress and certainly conflict and and causes people to have negative reactions to us, I suppose, who would prefer that their lives were not complicated or made more difficult by our inability not to speak out or speak the truth or what have you. Exactly, exactly. But, I mean, that's the irony of it is that, you know, the reason I got, you know, um, I started, you know, became popular, if you like, in the world of birth for writing about birth was because I I was not afraid to state these unpopular opinions. And I was... A maverick who was independent to to the system slightly. Um, I wasn't a midwife. I wasn't a hypnobirthing teacher or any. You know, I was I was a writer, so I was on the edge, looking in, observing, and saying all the things that the people who were in the system wanted to say, but couldn't because they were, you know, in the system. So they all appreciated me then for being the person who had, you know, the courage to speak up, and that's my personality. You know, I I, I call things out. I say say what I see and <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they don't like me anymore because I did it about something that they, they didn't approve of but you know that's me yeah it's funny how that happens I mean that was a similar circumstance to me and you know like I became popular essentially because I was I was very controversial from the get-go but the reason that I was controversial is because I was saying things that other people weren't saying because I was willing to challenge things, you know, practices, political movements, ideologies, activism, 
actions, behaviors, whatever that others were supporting or going along with and that I saw as problematic. And the reason that I could do that was because I was independent. You know, I wasn't attached to an institution or an organization. I had my own platform. I wasn't reliant on other platforms. Um, But then as soon as I spoke out about things that I was not allowed to speak out about, all of those people turned on me as well. So there's limitations to independence and outspokenness too, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah. So I, I wonder, I mean, well, what's been the impact on you personally, you know, in your personal life has this, has this impacted you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it does, um, it does have an effect. I think I still have good days and bad days. I mean, we all do about everything, don't we? But I still have, on this front, I still have days where I feel like, yeah, you know, (laughs) I said what I wanted to say and I'm cool with that. And then other days I just think, you know, maybe they're all right. I'm an awful person. You know, it just, it's so it's so powerful to be um, attacked like that and to have that many people like in chorus, literally shouting these, these accusations at you that it's very hard. I think you do absorb it into your psyche and it does come up on, come up on, you know, in those times where perhaps you're already a bit low, you know, you're thinking, Oh, I'm having my midlife crisis or, you know, I've, I shouted at the kids today and I shouldn't have done or my relationship's not going very well or whatever it might be. I mean, it sort of creeps in there and it kind of says, oh, yeah, and do you remember what all those people said about you? You know, you really are an awful person. You know, it's just it's just another negative voice to add in to the other negative voices that you've accumulated as you've gone through your life. Uh, And I think it's sort of really affected how I feel about, you know, relationships and also being being known and being out there in the public eye a bit, you know, that whole thing of like, you know, a lot of those people um, who were really like keen to sort of be associated with me and, and be my friend in inverted commas, you know, that all of that stuff just seems really fake now. And so then it makes you very mistrustful of other people, new people coming along who now they want to be your friend because, you know, you're like the person who spoke out. You're like, mm. Yeah, I remember this feeling, you know, when you think, you know, sort of like, I don't know, it's just really hard to uh, to trust that people aren't going to let you down again, really. Um, yeah, you're like, okay, well, you like me now, but what if I say this? Or what if I have an opinion yeah. that you don't like in the future, then you're going to turn on me and it does make you mistrustful. I totally can relate to that. Yeah, yeah, it does. And that's kind of sad. And it's it's sad to... Um, to lose friends, you know, as well, people that you thought, thought were your friend. But then on the other hand, it really does shine a bright light onto who the actual people are in your life that matter and who the people are who are going to stick by you no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very kind of illuminating in that way, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's a positive thing, you know, and I do feel a lot more kind of, um, at peace with myself in a way, like in terms of like, you know, I just feel like in, in the right rhythm, you know, I felt really thrown off track by what happened last November and by the whole vibe that was going on leading up to that as well. And so now that I'm being more honest about what I think, I do feel a lot, my sort of sense of purpose and who I am and what I, you know, I don't feel like I'm hiding stuff from myself. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm clear. So that's good. Um, and you know, it's an amazing world that I've entered into. I feel like, you know, it's great to be in the conversation about what's going on, um, in terms of women's rights at the moment, because, you know, it's huge, it's hugely important and I'm fascinated by it. So I'm, I'm glad that I can now you know, whereas a year ago, if I read an article and I thought that is mind blowing, I really want to share that. I'd think I can't share that because I'm going to get annihilated. 
now I just think I'm going to share it because I've been annihilated mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've come, you know, it gives you that kind of feeling of survival that you, you can't, you know, you kind of feel like you've got immunity somehow now. Yeah, for sure. I think in a lot of ways it can be liberating and, and to make you feel sort of more courageous. Like there's nothing really that, or probably maybe something will come along, but there's few things in any case that I feel afraid of saying out loud, you know, I'm just, I'm not really afraid of very much after having gone through multiple cancellations and so on and so forth. And I think it does teach you resilience after you sort of um, get past the, I don't know, emotional trauma of the whole situation. Yeah. (laughs) And you realize that a lot of the things, you know, like being called transphobic, for example, you know, it's, it doesn't, that just bounces right off me now because I just think, it, it's it's a meaningless word it's come to mean something again a bit like inclusivity it's kind of it's been given a new meaning um which is 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 bullshit yeah wow. i want to i mean before i'll let you go soon i know it's late for you there but i want to talk just a little bit more about your new book um which is called my period find your flow and feel proud of your period um yeah. i wonder i mean do you do you think do you think it's possible to feel positively towards our periods? I mean, I think probably <laughs> most women and girls don't feel very positively about their periods. You know, either it's like a really terrible experience if you have bad periods and bad cramps and so on and bad PMS symptoms or whatever, or it's like yeah. a nuisance um, at least. Do you think that we can have a positive relationship with our periods? Well, you know, I, I I totally hear what you're saying. I mean, it's complicated, isn't it? But I do think that we can. I think, um, you know, for a start off, you know, uh, talking about women who have really negative experiences with their periods, a lot of those women shouldn't be. You know, it's it's um, it's common for women to have very heavy periods, very painful periods, really bad PMS, etc. But it's not normal. It shouldn't be. In the, in the vast majority of cases, there should be things that could be done about that. Um, you know, we know how fobbed off women can be by doctors. Uh, I was reading a stat today that um, the average woman takes seven and a half years to get a diagnosis of endometriosis. Seven and a half years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, you know, but the, the book that I've done is, is for sort of nine, 10, 11, 12 year old girls. And I think by putting you know, positive information, and really it's, you know, the book is about um, learning about your body, how it works, and tuning into your body, you know, I talk about being a cycle detective, you know, so it's encouraging kids to um, notice what's happening, and be curious about what's happening in their body, Um, and, you know, being friends with their body, loving their body, trusting their body, listening to their bodies, we do all those things, and we learn what's normal for us, then, you know, it can Um, then enable us to realize when there's a problem and again it's a bit like the birth thing you know knowing that you can stand up for yourself and go back to the doctor and say look this isn't good enough I need a second opinion or I need some more help here Um, you know all of those things are important and can make periods a more positive experience and I think you know there there is something um, kind of cool about you know the way our bodies work that if you if you know you reframe it for kids and for adults in terms of like, you know, you know, I was talking to someone else today about this, you know, like the whole thing about ovulation and how a lot of women aren't told um, much information about ovulation until they try to get pregnant. And in fact, when I was writing the book, there was a little bit of a question mark from some of the editors about, you know, well, do, does it really matter? You know, like, for example, the fact that you're, temp- you have, you know, you're, temperature changes around ovulation do we really need to be telling 10 year old girls this isn't that just if you want to get pregnant and it's like well you know no because it's really cool (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's really interesting and it's not all about getting pregnant you know it's you know when I was at school I no one really talked about ovulation as far as I remember and I think it was probably about I'd probably been menstruating for about 15 years before my friend said to me we kind of sat there chatting having a cup of tea or something and she said oh oh I'm oh my god I'm ovulating and I was like what Mm -hmm. and she said 
oh yeah, I just I could just feel it. it was, and I, she, I said, you can't tell. What do you mean you can tell when you're ovulating? I was completely shocked. And she said, yeah, I even know what side I ovulate from each month. I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> so do you know what I mean? All of these pieces of information that um, we just don't get given when we're, you know, at that young age, are, are, you know, A, they're just really interesting. And B, you know, they can be really useful and helpful to you. And they can help you know when things have deviated from what's normal for you and help you realize when you have other, you know, you, some people call your period, the, the, what they call it, the fifth vital sign, you know, like you can, it, it, it gives you an indication that you have, that you may have other health problems, you know, if there are problems with your period, it's another, it's a sign that something isn't, you know, in balance in your body, maybe it's your diet, maybe it's exercise, maybe it's not getting enough rest, maybe there's a health issue, you know, so all of these things, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I totally take your point. It's not about going out there with a drum and banging it, saying your period is amazing. You have to love it, you know. <laughs> but it is more about just being curious about that aspect of your life, because you're, if you're a woman, you are um, almost certainly going to be having periods, um, you know, for quite a big chunk of your life. So, you know, being curious about it, making friends with it, reframing it, you know, um, thinking about it in more positive ways has surely got to be a good thing. Mm-hmm. You are kind of stuck with it. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Um and I've and I've had similar experiences to you around not really understanding ovulation until I was well, well, well into adulthood and, and also I remember a friend of mine as a teenager saying she was having ovulation pain or saying that she could feel ovulation and I had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> and yeah. so now I've like experienced all this like retroactive frustration because I just wish I'd known so much more about my reproductive cycle when I was younger. And I think you're right. I mean, I think it would teach us to value and appreciate our periods a lot more if we understood them as part of a larger, important process that's very useful for us to understand um, in terms of our bodies and and reproduction. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I, I really wish that was more a part of sex education. It certainly should be because it would help women in terms of and girls in terms of controlling their, you know, whether or not they become pregnant, for example. <laughs> yes, I mean it's it's really helpful information when you get to that point, isn't it? Um, in terms of you know, and I think with there's kind of a bit of fear around telling girls that kind of information because it's like, you know, they they might get pregnant if you you know if they you know. You know what I mean? It's like all this fear around, you know, just go on the pill. You know, we're not going to try and tell you anything about cycles or ovulating or when you might get pregnant and when you might be more fertile or any of that stuff because it's too dangerous for you to know this, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You're out of control. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You'll screw it up. Women can't be trusted, so we come full circle. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's why I got involved in the conversation around periods in the first place because I I, I went on this workshop with this amazing woman in Australia called uh, she was in the UK when I did the workshop but uh, called Jane Hardwick Collings, and she illuminated for me the link between periods and birth, which sounds crazy because you think well obviously there's a link, but you know not just the you know not just the obvious link, but the link in terms of you know how we the messages, the cultural messages that we get and the, the things that are said to us by our family, etc., around our first period and how that implants, you know, um, ideas about what it means to be a woman. And, you know, about that's about that's when the narrative starts um, that women take with them into the labor room in terms of how they feel about their body and how they, the, whether they feel their body is something that can be relied on and trusted to have a baby, you know, it goes right back to the to when they had their first period and how that was framed for them, and the kind of like messages, <clears throat> you know, like period stigma, shame, um, keeping it a secret, it being a bit disgusting, um, being something that you know you you don't talk about. Um, which so many women have that kind of environment um, around their periods. And then, you know, you take that forward into, you know, it all feeds into the narrative of the female body being something that is, you know, problematic um, and dysfunctional. 
Well, I, uh, I've taken up a lot of your time, so I will let you go. But um, thank you so much for talking <laughs> with me. This was a really um, interesting conversation. And I'm so glad that we were finally able to touch base and chat. And, and I hope that we can stay in touch in the future. Absolutely. It's been really great to talk to you. Okay. Well, thank you so much for all your work and for your courage. Thank you so much. You just heard an interview with Millie Hill. To learn more about her work, visit milliehill.co.uk. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit FeministCurrent.com and click the donate button. <laughs>